Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Boogaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week we return north to the wall with Professor Ian McGuinness. Ian is professor at the Highlands and Islands in Scotland. Steve and I talk about the penultimate episode to season five. This is the episode where Shireen gets burned at the stake. And then in my bird's eye view, I include a short excerpt of my longer conversation with Chris Swank. She will be returning at a later episode to talk more about Catelyn Stark. A brief word about Steve and I. We are actually starting two new podcasts. One is called Perfect Stranger Things, where we cover the first season of Netflix's Stranger Things. The first episode of Perfect Stranger Things is due out Monday. The other is called Cocoons of Horror, and that one we cover the schlocky movies that inspired Stranger Things. So those are two totally different podcasts. They do overlap, but one is called Perfect Stranger Things, the other one is called Cocoons of Horror, and that should be available now if you search for Cocoons of Horror. So search for those wherever you search for podcasts. Without further ado, here is Dr. Ian McGinnis. I hope that I'm not taking you away from Chloe or... <laughs> She's outside uh, and uh, I'm happy there for the moment. Okay, so. <laughs> good. I'm assuming it's not a wet and dreary day where you are? It, it's cold uh, and grey, but it seems to be dry for the moment. Uh, uh-huh. We're supposed to be getting gales tomorrow about later. Uh-huh. Now, if you're like me, Ian, you know that the brochures for your institute are usually shot. You know, They, sh- they have the photo shoots on like the sunniest day of the year. <laughs> right? Yes. We have we have some uh, various bits of uh, of marketing material which which shows mm. the Highlands at its best, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. They're usually going to give you a sunny day. Yeah. Uh and then, you know, when you get there you you learn that there's maybe like one day a year where it looks like that. <laughs> and I was thinking the wall has might probably has this issue too. It's it's supposed to be like a sunny and warm day at the wall in this chapter. <laughs> I was thinking they probably have they're probably doing all their promotional material <laughs> on this one sunny and warm day at the wall. How to sell the night's watch the, to the recruits. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I I have questions about I have questions about the night's watch. I want to get your opinion on. But I'm going to read this uh, I'm going to read my synopsis first. Cool. All right. So Sam sits down next to John with the good news he has been passed through and will be assigned to Maester Aemon. Both Sam and John are happy of the news, but John keeps to himself the part that he played in this development. The boys gather inside the sept they each learn which part they will play. Some, including Gren and Pip, will be off to the Rangers. Sam will be a steward. Then John learns to his dismay that he has been assigned to the stewards as well. John is shocked, angry, and bitter. Then Sam points out that the old bear might be grooming him for command. Later, John and Sam are escorted north of the wall to take their vows in a circle of nine weirwoods. Ghost runs into the wood and returns with a human hand. Uh, so, Dr. Ian McGinnis, do you want to talk about a character, a plot point, a theme, or shall you and I climb the ladder of chaos? Uh, I, might, I might try the ladder of chaos this time. Oh, well, it's perilous. I don't know. <laughs> this is All right, well, let's let you go first, then. You take the first rung. Okay. Uh, well, I, I thought the one of the uh, interesting themes was, was the, the Night's Watch itself. Um, and yeah, and the vow the vow they took, 
Um, I think there's all manner of interesting uh, kind of parallels there, but but also also Martin going out on a on a limb perhaps a little bit. But um, but yeah, I, I thought that you know the, there's obvious links between the Night's Watch and the uh, and the medieval uh, military orders. But I also thought with the vow as well, there's also a kind of comparison with with men being inducted into medieval knighthood as well. Which, right. Um, uh, yeah. I I. I would like to hear you talk about that. Let me go ahead and um, read the vow. I'm sure that lots of folks have heard it before, but uh, just so we know what we're talking about. Hear my words and bear witness to my vow. Night gathers, and now my watch begins. It shall not end until my death. I shall take no wife, hold no lands, father no children. I shall wear no crowns and win no glory. I shall live and die at my post. I am the sword in the darkness. I am the watcher on the walls. I am the fire that burns against the cold, the light that brings the dawn, the horn that wakes the sleepers, and the shield that guards the realms of men. I pledge my life and honor to the night's watch for this night and all the nights to come. So what did you see in this vow that interested you? I mean, I think that the whole um, the whole idea of, of joining a kind of fraternal order military order or militaristic order um i think has obvious parallels to to the the military orders that grew up in the middle ages post first crusade the templars and the hospitallers mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the Teutonic knights um and i think that, that there are obvious parallels there although of course the night watch is like the kind of bastard brother of it in as much as it, it takes all the waifs and the strays yeah uh, it's not it's not something that most people join voluntarily although some do um but i think that the vow itself as well you know those statements of uh you know that the, you're essentially rejecting your past life you're mm-hmm. you're giving up any notion of land holding or marriage and children and all these things are very important in the middle ages um you know again the the, the parallels to the to the military orders i think are, are quite clear um but at the same time i think also the you know the comments of things in terms of what they're there to do they're there to protect people they're there to serve i mean there, there is also uh, unsurprisingly i suppose but 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 a parallel with with someone being inducted into knighthood as well which is hmm. has religious connotations but is still more secular and i did think that the the vow and indeed the night's watch itself is quite a secular enterprise hmm. i think i have a different view on this in one sense you can kind of see like the septon and the sept are you know almost an afterthought at the wall yeah at, at least yeah. It, it seems that way even the mm. septon is you know drunk most of the time or whatever <laughs> <laughs> Although I will say this, you know, this is not the first drunken septum we've heard of. No, I mean no. it's or, almost or, like or, or the last. <laughs> yeah, it's like every other septum that's mentioned in in, in World of Ice and Fire is a drunkard, and even like uh, Thoris of Mir, he's not a septum. Uh, you know, he's a priest or whatever. He's also a drunk. So I I think George yeah. must have known a few priests <laughs> in his life who hit the sauce once too often. I suppose. Modern popular culture, though, I think quite often has that kind of attitude towards the church. It's all, almost always depicted as as being degenerate, and its uh-huh. its representatives are you know two faced and preaching one thing yeah. while behaving another. I think it's quite a common modern perception of the medieval or the, the quasi medieval church. Sure, yeah, right, right, right. So anyway, I think I would argue that the 
Night's Watch is actually a very highly religious institution. And okay. I'm thinking about this in sort of sociological terms. Um, not necessarily that it's connected very well to the uh, you know the the faith of the seven or the old gods or whatever but one definition of religion and this would be sort of durkheim is to say that this is a this is a a community that is in the orbit of something that they perceive as supernatural and in this case i think that the gravitational force is the wall itself um Ooh. we we know that the wall is supernatural but we don't know it very clearly. But even from the Night's Watch perspective, they are they view themselves as holding back the darkness. You know, it's it's almost it's it's very much this sort of dualistic light and dark idea. And of course, the wall is everything. It looms over everything in the Night's Watch. Mm. It really is the supernatural gravitational force that defines the existence of this monastic order at the wall. And of course, you, as you pointed out, you know, the, the take no wives, father, no children, you know, forsake all of your land holdings, all of that business. That all sounds very monastic as well. What do you think mm. about that? I you know I, I see where you're coming from. Absolutely. I, I suppose I hadn't, I hadn't considered that element of the supernatural and that kind of uh, the, the wall and the duty as perhaps an article of, religious faith as opposed to something else i i suppose i i just saw it as as you know that, that what they're doing is is absolutely they're signing up to something that has a, a quasi monastic um feel to it yeah they, they are to perform a duty whether whether they choose to be there or not once they're there that's what they sign up to that's what the vow is about it's about it's about signing up to things it's almost like conscription but then you know um uh, buying into the to that that brotherhood mm -hmm. and what it stands for and what they're there to do. But it is about defense. It is about protection. There is discussion to an extent of, of honor. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I just saw all that as being intensely secular <laughs> in as much as, you know, it is, it is a, a warrior code. It's a warrior society. And while, you know, as you said, there is that religious underpinning, there's the septum there, yeah. there is the religious element in which, you know, you, you say your vow in a religious context or, or before a religious individual or representative. But beyond that, everything else I saw as being far more secular in mm. nature, but I might be wrong. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I, I think that that probably would be... I a natural reading of it. I feel like my reading is probably the outlier here. I I mean, the way that I'm looking at this is that the true religion at the wall, if that's the right term, the true religion at the wall is the maintenance of the wall because the wall almost functions as this Titan, uh, oh. magical Titan kind of figure, um, you know, even the mythology behind it. Anyway, uh, and then I just, and the reason why the Septon seems like an afterthought and the Sept seems like an afterthought is because it's always sort of going to be second banana to the true deity and <laughs> that being the wall itself. Mm. I wanted to, I, I did want to talk about a little bit about the, uh, the choice to take the vow. All right. Is there a flaw in this? Tell me if there's a flaw here. All right. Let's say you're like, um, let's see, who, who's the, who's the guy that's accused of rape here? A Darian, all right? Mm. Let's say you're like Darian, all right? So you're accused of rape and sent to the wall. You know, you go through your little acolyte process. Mm. And then Mormont stands up and says, all right, anyone who wants to leave, go ahead. There's the door. Mm. 
What happens if Darian just walks out the door? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> what happens then? I mean, do I guess the question is, does someone like Darian really have a choice? Well, yeah, um, I, I don't suppose he feels he's got anything to go back to. But but yeah, as he said, you know, considering the gap or, or the, the, the geographical distance between where he's come from and where he's ended up, surely there is an alternative. I mean, I, I suppose it just comes back to kind of peer pressure, doesn't it? I mean, the way it's depicted in the book, the way it's, uh-huh. it's filmed in the TV show as well. You know, they're all standing there. They're all watching each other, yeah. but they're probably all potentially judging each other as well. And right. um, and and the 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 leaders kind of looking down on them from on high. And yeah, I would have thought that few. Well, I would imagine that few would take that opportunity to leave, even given the opportunity. Yeah, honestly, it just felt like all right. I'm done. I'm I'm out of here. <laughs> I, I'm going to East Watch, and I'm sailing to Dorn. I don't know what I don't it could be that all right sure Darian you can choose to leave but as soon as you leave the premises mm. yeah is somebody sending a crow down south to say he's left yeah come and arrest him right you know and then, yeah. then someone like Ned Stark you know picks mm. you up on the way down and puts you back into prison I don't, I don't know what happens but there seems oh, to be I... a little chink in the armor here Oh, just on that 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 point though, the, the, you know the the first scene or the the Ned's first scene when he's executing the yeah. the deserter. Yeah, how does he know he's a deserter and he hasn't just chosen not to join up? <laughs> uh, Nobody yeah. comes back from the wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess they say that they they questioned him for a while. Like they've got him okay. up on some wall questioning him. Um, and uh, but he's like you know a raving lunatic at that point. Yeah. Uh, so what what do they actually know? I who who knows? I I, I do mm. think that there's a little flaw in the, in the system here. But, mm. Um, mm. maybe no one's figured out how to exploit it yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the things you're not supposed to ask too many questions about. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I want to talk a little bit about John, if that's all right. Yeah. So as this begins, John really has had a little success i mean he's seen sam's value he kind of sees the designs of sir alistair he's worried about sam's safety and so he makes an appeal to maester aemon and it seems to have paid off you know maester aemon's going to take sam under his wing and then sam can kind of be released from the clutch clutches of alistair thorn <laughs> and it's a sunny day at the wall and the, the wall is glistening as it bleeds a little bit and everything is bright and things are going well, in other words, for John. Mm. And, you know, even so much so that, you know, when, when Sam walks into the sept, Pip and Gren are like shocked and kind of thrilled that Sam is actually there because mm. they were a little bit dismayed about that business. And then John learns that he's going to be a steward. Mm. And I think he just feels like this is absolutely below his station. <laughs> and but everything we know about John up until this point is that he has no station. Yeah. In fact, he hates being called Lord Snow, I think. Because mm. because that's an assumption about my my class, you know, my my upper class upbringing. You don't get it. I have no station. I'm a bastard. And yet mm. he does feel a little bit entitled here. Yeah, I think I think it's a recognition of <sighs> While he has always been kept in his place, while he's always been reminded of 
of what he is, especially by by Caitlin. Um, yeah. I, I think at the, at the same time, though, he has been moving in those circles. He has been out with his stepbrothers around the father, doing you know, learning fighting in the in the castle mm. and and doing doing the things that you would expect a lord's son to do just at a slight remove mm-hmm. um so i i think you know he makes that comment you know i'm i'm a, i'm a better swordsman a better rider than any of you and i think that that those types of skills absolutely come from a a lordly upbringing those are the types of skills that that young men and noble families would have been taught how to do and and i think that he has benefited from that despite you know being a illegitimate mm-hmm. um so yes, I, I think he absolutely sees himself as being above that. I, I did also, I, I suppose, I thought of it in terms as well. It reminds you that in the books, at least, he is still young, um, and it's it's that kind of reaction of it, it's not fair mm-hmm. um, because it's not what. Yeah, you I think he's something like fourteen or whatever. But that would yeah. that would that have been considered young? Would I guess the question is like if if someone wanted to join uh, Teutonic Knights or something, would fourteen be? far too young for something like that yeah the, the military orders tend not to let children in uh they they they, they allow they allow children to to be stationed there kind of thing but they, they don't expect them to take their vows hmm. uh, and indeed you know they, they they're I think the church is very much against <laughs> that as a you know of them letting children in anyway um because it's you know they're not they can't make that decision for themselves at that age, hmm. and it's not like it's not like convents or, or monasteries where you can just ship off your kids and <laughs> that you don't want or can't look after, and and the church will look after them forever. It, it is a different thing, um, and even in a military context, you wouldn't expect um, boys to be to be at war until probably around sixteen. I would I would suggest. So I, I think I think John's still below the kind of normal age for those things. In the notes that you sent me in preparation, you mentioned that there's something of a tripart structure to the medieval view of life. I was curious about that. I suppose it comes back to that that kind of the modern uh, perception of of medieval society, which is uh, surrounds the the use of the term feudal. Uh, although, of course, that's that's been rather um, picked apart in, in recent times. Uh, in historiography but but the the classic idea is medieval society was split into the three orders which is uh, those who fight those who work uh, and those who pray mm. uh, and i i just thought there was there was you know perhaps an echo of that in the in the watch uh, although in a slightly different way but you know you have right. the builders you have the riders uh, the rangers sorry yeah. uh, you have the, you have the stewards so you have those who fight those who work and and there's then those who do skilled work perhaps <laughs> right those who fight those who work and those who change the bed sheets or whatever yes <laughs> so yeah it's interesting that there is that tripart structure it, it may be again martin likes to do these little things in hybrids right so yeah. he's probably bringing in a little bit of that yeah this relationship between john and sam uh is very interesting to me and um in I mean, John has done so much for Sam, even so much that you know you, you, that maybe Sam doesn't even know how much he's done for him. Well, um, but Sam really wants to attach himself to John, and I think that that's probably what motivates his decision to take the new gods. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that, to me, I mean, I guess that's tantamount to conversion, I suppose. 
but I think yeah. it's conversion for the sake of the friendship. Yes, uh, I think so. Although I wondered also if there was a kind of element of, you know, the, the, he says himself he's casting off everything, and and, and with justification considering how yeah. crappily he's been treated by his father. <laughs> but right. but you know he's he's throwing off everything to do with his family, including the religion, uh, and and actually taking his vows in front of the old gods. I mean, maybe that's him adopting a new religious identity mm-hmm. as well as a. Mm-hmm. a, a, a a personal or a secular one um you know it, it, it's almost a kind of baptism on you you know he's, yeah. he's he's embracing a new religion to to represent his new self yeah i think so and i think in this way there's an interesting parallel here with Arya in the later books mm. um and i think that sam may do this even more successfully because you know sam really feels like he can't he can't go home right yeah uh you know it's not like he's you know, deep down in his his core, he's a Tarly from Horn Hill, and so he's never going to truly be able to be, you know, cast off that identity. Mm. I think that he's whole hog part of this new order. Um, whereas I think Arya is, that's kind of what the expectation of the Faceless Men for Arya. You know, they mm. want her to cast off her identity, her ego, um, mm. her her, you know, sort of personal designs, and I think that she can kind of become a good faker, but I don't <laughs> think that she ever does what Sam does. No, I think I think Arya uses the faceless man as a means to an end. She's right. she she has a goal in mind, whether she perhaps recognizes it all the time or not. But it is to go home. It is to seek that revenge. You know, her list of of people. To yeah, take that's her that prayer. That's her nightly but, yeah. prayer, right? That's so, her so, true I mean, religion. That, that, yeah, exactly, and and that's that's what that's what she's training for. Whereas, whereas, yeah, I think Sam realizes he's got, he's got nowhere to go. I mean, it's not as clear in the book, uh, but in the TV series, it absolutely is. He tells that story of what his father said to him. Mm. Uh, you know that he's going to take him out hunting, and then his horse is going to fall, and whether anything, you know whether he's injured or not, he's not he's not coming back, um, which is appalling. But, but but yeah, it's it's you know Sam is not the son he wanted, so he wants shot of him and. So yeah, Sam has absolutely nothing to return to. Why not fully embrace his new reality, even though he's not necessarily suited for it? Just to give you an opportunity, I'm just curious, are you seeing any historical analogs in this chapter? I, I thought the idea of family and succession and sons and fathers, I thought was, was quite interesting. Hmm. I mean, that obviously the that allusion to to Sam and the fact that his, his father has rejected him you know that he's not the the masculine fighter that he wants his son to be that he wants his heir to be uh, but sam's description of how his father used to uh, take him along to meetings and things uh, rather like we've discussed in regards to john yeah w- moving in those circles but 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 very much with a purpose for for sam and then once he gets rid of sam with dickon um but that idea that he learns what it is to be a lord how to behave how to speak to his his men mm-hmm. um you know how to adjudicate uh, you know it's it's all meant to be a learning experience um and, and that's how that's how young lords you know would have been introduced to these things yeah i mean it, it, interesting that i suppose in a, in a scottish or, or even like an irish context you also had the idea of um fosterage where sons would be sent to the families of, of maybe neighboring families or allied families taken out of their comfort zone and thus learning in a different environment mm-hmm. but learning the same types of things the same skills and the skill set that they would need when they become a lord 
themselves. And that's where we then perhaps see the link between uh, Mormont and John. If Sam's right, if Mormont selects John as his steward so he can do exactly the same with him so he can effectively groom him for yeah for command later right. that is an interesting thing especially for john because he's illegitimate you know mormon potentially then taking the the role of his new father um or his alternate father that's right uh, and that, that that's quite an interesting thing as well I and mormon even says you know when he's giving his little speech in the sept he says you're the only sons we will ever have yeah, I thought that was quite an interesting line, considering the fact he does have a son. <laughs> he absolutely has a, a son, which I suppose he's disavowed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess one way to view this is like, this is the propaganda that every Lord Commander says, you're the mm. only sons we'll ever have. I mean, surely a number of these people who have come to the wall do have sons yeah, yeah. Uh, that they left behind. But, you know, that it, metaphorically, it's like, no, this is our family now. You know, you don't have any connections anymore in the South. Mm. This is this mm. is our family. You're the only sons I'll ever have. And of course, I suppose he's choosing John to be his, you know, eldest son and heir, if Sam's perspective, you know, wins the day. Mm. But at the same time that also suggests a kind of, you know, medieval style primogeniture, you know, the the son follows the father. Um, but as we see down the line that's not actually how it works. You know, they have a quasi-democratic process in terms of choosing who the new Lord Commander should be. So so, uh -huh. so, so Mormon, Mormon kind of singling John out is uh -huh. not necessarily all it's cracked up to be unless he's going to dictate who follows him. We know how these things work. Well, we, yeah. we know how these things work. There's going to be a George W. Bush that comes along, <laughs> you know. You know, there's going to be a reason why the next Kennedy gets the political office. Anyway, I, I think I thought that was interesting. Mm. And then, um, you know, Sam is to be the maybe the next maester, even though, you know, he's sort of starting out at this lower stage, uh, you know, learning from Eamon, but also taking care of Eamon. That's very yeah. much of a, a father-son thing. Yeah. When the father is sort of late in life and really needs the son to do a lot of parental work. Mm. And and what one thing that Mormon says is he's precious to us. Take good care of him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and but, I also I mean, thought it was I, interesting that Chet gets uh, displaced. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're going yeah, to send poor Chet to the kennels now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're useless. Well, is that is that line of. Uh, the Sam says, I, I can help him. I, I can read and write his letters kind of thing. And John says, oh, yes, you'd be good at that. But I, again, it's that it's that social upbringing. Uh -huh. Of course, someone like Sam or indeed John can, can read and write because they're from noble households, whereas I presume Chet is not. So, so you know, he's useless. He can go down and look after the dog. Right. Well, I mean, look, imagining that this has parallels to this part of the world in the 1200s or something, being able to read is actually quite a an amazing feat. You know, not mm. many people can do it. Mm. Um, I mean, you could probably read enough to write your name, to sign a contract, to make a, a list, you know, a shopping list or whatever. Mm. But to be able to do what Sam does is is really valuable. And honestly, how has Maester Eamon been writing letters and whatnot? <laughs> yeah, no, that's <laughs> with, a good point. Without someone like Sam. <laughs> I always find Eamon 
a very interesting character. Um, that reveal as to who he actually is, I think, is quite yeah. It, it comes it comes slightly out of left field, and you don't see it coming. Yeah, he's Eamon was a secret targ before it was cool to be a secret targ. <laughs> but uh, and then and then of course linking him even closer to John, even though he didn't know it. Mm. Okay, finally, I want to talk a little bit about going north of the wall. I think this is the first time we've seen a character go north of the wall since the prologue of the book. Yeah. And, you know, they go to the haunted forest and there is a sense of foreboding. You know, it's like they're all sort of congratulating Sam and John for becoming men of the Night's Watch. Uh, until, you know, there's that old grizzled veteran who says, mm, I, I mislike the, the smell of the air. Let's, it's getting dark. Let's go back. And then Ghost trots up with a human hand in hand. his <laughs> In his snout. So, yeah, so you do get the sense. I mean, there is a sense of that Martin is kind of reminding that there's something supernatural up here. Yeah. That you should be reminded of, dear reader. You know, even though you haven't seen it since the prologue, there's, you know, there's some spooky stuff up here. (laughs) I think that there's something interesting about the parallel between Ghost and the Weirwood trees. Mm. Uh, Let me read this little passage. Um, And suddenly Ghost was back, stalking softly between the weirwoods. White fur and red eyes, John realized, disquieted, like the trees. And then we have this pregnant ellipsis, (laughs) like the trees. Hmm. (laughs) I I mean, clearly, clearly there's a parallel. And and Martin is wanting us to see this parallel. Like, Ghost represents something supernatural Uh, in the same way that the trees represent something supernatural. And here they are in sort of a grove of weirwood trees. And John is kind of, I don't know why he's just noticing this for the first time, but he is just noticing this for the first time. And so in a sense, you have this almost ghost serves almost like this beast from the other side. Who's come to warn the humans. Yeah. uh, I think you have the whole thing as well of, you know, I, I think beyond the wall seems to be somewhere that ghost belongs, even though, of course, you know, they, they, they found him south of the wall. Um, but he's in his element there in, in the, the forest and in the snow. Yeah. And and, and ultimately, you know, the, there is that recurring theme throughout the series that actually it's where John belongs as well. Um, right. You know, ghost and John are something different. The ghost is the, the albino uh, uh, Wolf and John obviously is the is the odd one out in his own family. Yeah, black sheep, uh, which, which which isn't his family, you know. So so yeah, and that idea of and ultimately you know not not undermining the end, but you know it's where he'll end up going back to. Um, so I think there is that idea of of John kind of being where he's meant to be, and I suppose the the, the supernatural bit of it. Because uh, I think earlier in the in this book, the, the the other recruits have been saying to John about you know he, they're talking about his dream and and saying that he's a warg, um, which of course you know relates back to to his brother. But um, mm. but but yeah, that suggestion almost that, that John has some of that ability as well. John is associated perhaps with the supernatural too. I think so, yeah. and I think that like I, when Martin is calling out the parallel between the wolf and the weirwood. Well, what is the weirwood? The weirwood represents the spirituality of the first man. Mm. And of course, the dire wolf 
represents the sigil of the Starks. So, of course, there's a parallel there. But also, it really is reminding John of his roots at the very moment when he's supposed to be eschewing his roots, right? Yeah, yeah. So I thought that was that was interesting there. I think it it is it comes back to that the, the John as well being the only one who who says you know he still follows the old gods and that's you know again that's quite a stark thing but but you associate it with with it being a northern thing mm. which then seems to reinforce the fact that of all the recruits and indeed even of of the men who are there there aren't actually that many Northmen there which seems quite slightly odd because because you would expect the men of the north to be there you know, protecting the realm, protecting their area, guarding the wall. John is, John has that, that connection again, through the Starks to, to those of old and, and to the old religion. But, but he, the fact that he's the only one, again, it kind of singles him out as being a bit different, but, but again, I think reinforces the fact that he's meant to be there. Right. And I think that, I mean, maybe it goes to the sort of the disrepair of the night's watch. It could be that in the, the, the days of glorious past, you know, every second son of the Starks was going to go up to the wall, but yeah, it just so happens that most of the the wall is mostly populated by people who were sitting in the prison at King's Landing, <laughs> um, and so you got a lot of Southerners there. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So I, I suppose I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. No, I was just going to say. I mean, obviously, Bendon's there, but we see so little of them <laughs> that, that you kind of forget about. Yeah, them. I I do get the sense that uh, Mormont is sort of a i mean of course bear island is northern but you know he makes that comment like of course there's a grove north of the wall because that grove was there thousands of years before you know the the andals brought their their fancy new religion to westeros <laughs> yeah. he he really is talking about you know talking like a northerner in this yeah, in yeah. this uh chapter all right, the, so, fact he's play, the fact he's played by a Scotsman, Bullet Hills, but sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, notable introductions. Um, uh, we meet uh, Septon uh, Celadar, or Keladar, I suppose I should say. Septon oh. Keladar, who's usually drunk. Yes. Awful <laughs> uh, Yarwick. I have this sort of back, you know, sort of headcanon for... Septon Keladar. He's probably from High Garden or something. He's been assigned yeah, yeah. to the wall, and no one cares that he's there. <laughs> he just—he—he's got nothing better to do than get to get drunk. It—it it does beg the question though as to why he's been sent there. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, we meet uh, Awful Yarwick, who's the first builder, and no notable departures in this chapter. However, we are reminded again that Benjen is not there. Um, yeah. Uh, show differences this whole business with mormon speech takes place in the yard yeah and i think it could be just be like look we don't need to build a new sept or, or a new set we don't need to build a new set for this scene mm. let's just have mormon give his little speech in the yard but it does remind us that systematically the show the hbo show has removed a lot of the religious elements from the show yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm thinking specifically the trial by combat between Braun and Vardis Egan. Mm. You know, in the books, they kneel before a Septon and, you know, there's this little religious ceremony that happens. Yeah. Not in the show. And then, of course, yeah. we have this scene that's not in the Sept. And then eventually when Ned is 
about to be beheaded. In the book, the High Septon is basically giving a little sermon before the, you know, Ned's supposed confession. Mm. Well, in the show, they give that to Pycelle, who's a maester. So I do think that for the most part, the show has tried to remove a lot of faith elements, although they do, I, I guess they do bring that back in with the High Sparrow. Yeah, I, I suppose I wondered if, if if they deliberately kind of fudge the difference between the 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 septons and the meisters. Mm, though, yeah, in the show, I think the meisters are are possessed of a kind of quasi religious authority. Even you know that they are as a spiritual and moral support, which you know you can see as a kind of religious type thing. Yeah, and that's and we were talking about monastic orders. I mean, the citadel functions a little bit like. Like that as well. I mean, not not yeah. in the same way, but uh... the, the the citadel as well, and indeed the meisters, that the educational element, but particularly you know the writing and the keeping of history, um, has a very obvious monastic link as well, mm. um, because you know medieval monastic houses were the record keepers that uh, they they wrote down the histories of the day. They were entrusted to do that. That carried on in these institutions mm. over time. Um, so, yeah, so if you I, truly I want are... to be a historian, Ian, <laughs> I, I need to be a meister. Though. <laughs> you, you need to, forsake, need to forsake your last name and your <laughs> <Yeah>. family, and <laughs> you're you're really going about this in a very half half-assed kind of way. I, I think I would always admit to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And now, Steve and I talk about the unfortunately named episode Dance of Dragons. Double Ds. Why do we have to confuse everybody? This is the episode where Arya recognizes Mirren Trant. Shireen gets burned at the stake. Jon brings the Wildling south. And Drogon enters the fighting pits. Here is comic Steve Osborne. Steve, how do you feel about human sacrifice? Um... You know, I don't have the data in front of me in terms of effectiveness ratios. Sure, sure. I bet you I could probably get a pretty decent ballpark of the official human sacrifices. But what I don't know that I have is, but here's what happened. Now that the sacrifice was made, all things were better, right? I mean, like that part I don't have. So I'm, I'm, I'm not going to rush to judgment until I see that data. Well, um, could we use like Temple of a Doom as a test case? Well, sure. So every time Molaram yeah, sure, would would remove a heart, mm-hmm. uh, they'd send the the afflicted down into the lava pit, and then the the heart would burn. So we knew that there was a relationship. Right. At, at least from the heart. perspective of Indiana Jones, when the afflicted, well, let's let's call not the afflicted. Let's say the gift, the human gift, mm-hmm. was sent into the lava. The heart, which had been removed, would then burn in the priest's hand. Sure. And if, if that's the goal? Well, I think the goal it's is... it's effective. Okay, so, all right. 
if it's look i'm going to show you if i pull this heart out here burn the body the heart will burn if it's just like a routine a bit a bit i think that the outcome you're looking for is to freak people out i don't even know if you need the human sacrifice unless unless you want to freak people out it seemed like there was a an obedience factor in there right tell me more well, it seemed like the display of ritualistic power, and what we do, what I don't have a full <laughs> understanding. Like, could any one of these people be a gift at any given moment? Is there a punishment that goes along with, uh, like, hey, you did this wrong, we're going to sacrifice you? So the the display of fire assumes that there is uh, Molaram has this this sort of supernatural power that that allows that to happen. That if you just ripped out somebody's heart, threw them into a pit, the part would just sort of get gross whereas in this case it still beats so like that's showing that he has some sort of supernatural power so now he is asserted into a certain amount of authority right so yeah he's I, the conduit of the power or he is the power or something mm-hmm. like that. yeah yeah so then you're like okay well i i'm already inferior to him in this regard so i'm going to defer a certain amount of power of authority and if there's a possibility that he also gets to decide who gets to go in this thing it's in my best interest to kind of keep my nose clean <laughs> We've mentioned the much maligned season five, right? Yeah. And this relates to Dorne, right? Or at least yes. the Dorne plot. Well, this is the other, I think this is the other side of the coin. People were really upset about Shireen. Okay. And the death of Shireen, and they didn't like it, and it hadn't... Yeah, the death, I mean, this season has the death of Shireen, the, the rape of Sansa, all of Dorne. I mean, yeah, there, yeah, so yeah. there are, like, some three heavy-hitting, yeah, yeah. like, ugh, moments, right? Yeah, so after the Sansa thing, people were, like, really upset, and they were already a little bit jaded because of the Dorne stuff. And then when this thing happens to Shireen, it's like, you know, a lot of people were just like, I'm done. I don't want to see this. I don't, I don't want any of this. Really? Like, so I was moved by the Shireen sacrifice, but not like, I'm, I'm, I guess for me, I'm like, all right, that's, it seems like something. Like, I mean, it doesn't, it's awful, but that's the point, right? Well, sure. Yeah, it's the point, but you have I to mean, understand. It's not like they were like, <laughs> it's not like the, the, the showrunners are like, I'm, I thought for sure people would be like excited about this. Yeah, but I think people had come to like her. Well, yeah, that's, I think that's and it, that helps. And it, it's one of those things where it's like, I mean, there are certain things that don't work thematically or the, the, the dialogue, like all of the Dorn stuff. It's like just critically, it's not likable, right? And right. then there are times when the show will just hurt your feelings. Mm. You know, anytime a wolf dies, that's bad. Rob dying, that was bad. Um, Ned dying. These are all things that really hurt your feelings. And it's at some point you just think, you know what? I don't want my feelings to be hurt anymore. <laughs> and I think a lot of people were like, yeah, I can put up with a lot, but that just hurts my feelings. Okay. There are things about the season that are just sort of critically problematic. And then there are things about the season that will just sort of generally hurt fans feelings. So if you get the critics upset and the fans upset, it generally isn't a good chemistry. I yeah, this didn't bother me. Well, this is well, clearly, I mean, you have a high tolerance for human sacrifice. We've already established <laughs> that, right? I'm uh, I'm I I look. 
I was I was effectively bothered by the fact that this was happening. But as a plot mover, I mean, here's the thing, right? Shireen's not taking the Iron Throne, so I'm I'm becoming like a little bit more of a man of economy when it comes mm-hmm. to characters at this point. Hey, if Tommen so, can be on the Iron Throne, certainly Shireen can be on the Iron Throne. Here's here's the thing, right? Everything is moving this direction. It seems like Melisandre's there's there's a lot about her that I'm still not sure what what I know. Like, is she a zealot because she's deeply impacted? Or is she a zealot for her own gain? You know, there's all these different elements there that I think are very intriguing, right? And the 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 degree of influence that she has over Stannis has been since the the introduction of him a major source of tension. Mm-hmm. It, it creates tension between his own fidelity to his wife. It takes its tension to his relationship to his homie Davos, who's more than just a, a, a his hand. He's his homie. And they've been homies for years. And so there's that element. And then now it's, they've done a good job of giving you the opportunity. Like Stannis was, I think, warming on people. Right. Mm-hmm. Or people were warming to Stannis because they're because because of the relationship with Shireen. Right. So the whole time I'm like, ah, why, why is she there? Why is she there? So there was a preparation for things are not going to go well for Shireen. Like that part, I, I think I'd already resolved to. Um, well, there was a hint, but, right? There was a hint that there was someone with his blood that would be an effective sacrifice. Sure. And then this episode really kind of. Well, because the last time we saw them, she basically says this was going to happen. And he just like, no. And then as soon as the episode starts off with like, oh, something bad is happening yeah, yeah. to his team. I'm like, oh, here we go. And you don't want it. But it's so here we go. Right. So now Stannis falls in the same ranks, you know, especially for Heather at this point as Jamie and Theon. Sure. They're donezo. They're donezo. Because if Jamie is irredeemable for pushing Bran through a window and... Theon is ir- irredeemable mm-hmm. for burning a couple of orphans. Then, hey, you put your daughter on the stake, and I don't care how good your voice. Yeah, is. no, I think that I think that that kind of goes to my point about feelings being hurt, right? Because so not only do we see Shireen out of the picture, now Stannis, in a way, is dead to the narrative in, in a way that he wasn't before, right? He's like he's all he's he's all in. There's no more tension. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, Stannis is just like okay. You're about as interesting to me as one of the other garden variety villains that we've met in this show. Sure. This this episode starts with a burning horse galloping by. Right. And nobody seems to care about that. We're okay with that. I think I I was thinking about this. I was thinking it's pretty typical for. A story, especially fantasy literature, to give you some sort of animal guide at the beginning. Like, some character will, like, follow an animal into a wood, and something magical will happen there. So the animals are used to sort of introduce this magical world. And I kind of felt like with this episode, the fact that it begins with a a horse on fire running (laughs) through a camp, it just, it's sort of like, hey, guess what? This is going to be bananas. Like, this episode yeah. is going to be bananas. 
Well, it's like you can almost now instead of like when you say something's bananas or bonkers, now you can just say, man, it's like a horse on fire out there. It's like a horse on fire. That's right. This entire episode is a horse on fire. So, all right. So clearly Heather has a problem with Stannis now. But because you're kind of pro-human sacrifice. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And she knows that. And she knows she she was marrying so so she's like, oh boy, Steve's gonna be all over the. So you didn't you didn't mind so much. You're like, she served her purpose. Well, <laughs> this is what I think is interesting, right? I mean, I I, I could I under, I kind of understand like the well, wait a minute, I invested in Rob, and now you killed Rob and Lady Stark, all this stuff. So like, now what do you do, right? But at the same time, I'm like, but that's we signed up for this, man. We signed up for a lot of stuff right out the gate, right out the yeah. gate. I mean, it's not like Game of Thrones was a slow burn. <laughs> right. Yeah, this started with two beheadings in the first episode. Yeah. Right? We we immediately, <laughs> in a scene of incest, follows pushing a kid out of a window. And now people are like, I don't know. This seems like it's gone up enough. Yeah. Guys, I, guys, what show have you been watching? There is. There's something about everyone's got a line. And violence for weird religious reasons is just going to be a line for a lot of people. And uh, as it should be. Does that hit home? Is that a subject that maybe needs to be explored? Is that? I mean, look, the the founding of the United States was all about hunting witches out because we're worried about nature and the dark magic that's in nature and go burn them at the stake. There's just something really gross about the whole thing. So maybe it does. Maybe it's sort of this built into us as this horrible part of our own past. I guess. But also, I think there's a fascinating notion that it's like the witch doing the burning. I mean, it's a wonderful flip-flop, right? I mean, I think that there's, again, I, yeah, the Shireen thing is problematic because I think it's, that's that's the point. Melisandre knocked on your door and said, hi, I'm Melisandre. I like to burn dudes. And that's kind of the first thing you need to know about me. I like to burn dudes. Yeah. And, um, you know, there are other things about me that you may be interested in knowing. But the first thing you got to know is that I burn dudes. Right. And and to be clear, everybody that was burned, that we've seen her burn, they have a backstory, too. And they were somebody's child at one point. (laughs) So just everyone settle down. All right. You know, you can't just gloss over like, oh, there's like 17 people being burned. Yeah, but I don't know them. (laughs) I don't know if that guy that's screaming in agony could read. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, if you want your hot take for for this uh, particular podcast, yep, totally pro uh, cooking terrain. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I'm glad. I'm glad we have you on the record. Well, I and the thing is, it was a moving scene. Her screams are, you know, talk about, yeah, I mean, I guess maybe this also follows in the same category of like, do we need the sound? It's like, yeah, got the sound instead of the imagery. And so on. I think, I mean, and then watching the mother switch, that was, to me, that was such a powerful scene because her maternal instincts kick in in such a way that like, it, it really helped with the the Stannis. Like, you're supposed to hate Stannis now. You could if you're going to try to advocate a little for Stannis, mm-hmm. you know, they've run out of provisions. His army is, is in, in worse shape. 
it's getting snowy. If you can't really go back, can't really go forward, they're, they may already be dead. Like right. there is that element, right? That he's like, look, my daughter's going to die here anyway. But look, if I do nothing, we all die. If I burn my daughter, worst case scenario, she just dies sooner. Best case scenario, um, you know, magic. Right? Right? I mean, I'm not saying no, that. you're yeah. not right. You're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I think. What if I said it like this? We're all going to die anyway. She just dies warmer. All right. I mean, if you say it like that. If she, look, we're all going to freeze to death. She goes out in a blaze of comfort. In a blaze of comfort. <laughs> that, that was one of my favorite Bon Jovi lines. <laughs> it was a, actually it was a PSA for electric blankets that were shorting out. <laughs> and they had Bon Jovi do the jingle for it, but instead of a blaze of glory, it was a blaze of comfort. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. There are certain things that I say that make myself giggle. Blaze of comfort might be one of them. <laughs> Uh, all right. The other horse on fire thing about this episode was that Arya goes full Tarantino. She sees Mirren Trant. Oh man, I, you know what? I think I just gave you a little spoiler for the next. Episode. Oh, I don't know. I thought we were just talking because she he's well, well observe. I was looking at it as an observation from like the Gimp situation. Oh yeah, yeah. Watching. No, I see. Yeah, that, that works. That works. She's very voyeuristic. So we learned that, yeah, okay, so sorry about that. We learned that Mirren Trant, who mm-hmm. who you will recall, killed Serial Pharrell, the beloved Serial Right, Pharrell. okay. I will say that's what I forgot, is I knew he, I forgot who he killed on her, you know, to get on the list, exactly. I think that what we're supposed to understand, and maybe the show has not a, done a great job at explaining this, but that Arya's got this list and but she kind of lacks the ability to be a full-on assassin right she's a kid Part of it is access right she's learned a lot about killing but she kind of wants to go pro right. you know she's the uh the stiglets of game of thrones yes and then she sees someone who's on her list and i think what this episode is trying to do is it's trying to show you She's got a decision to make. Does she does she become no one, right? Or does she keep her vendetta? Because her vendetta uh, is tied up in yeah, yeah, her, yeah. her own identity, right? Well, exactly right. And the way you say it is, ex- is explicit and helpful, but I, that's where I was feeling the tension, right? Is like as soon as she diverted from her path yeah, yeah, yeah. of her assignment, so to speak, it was it was absolutely a return to her identity. Right, and, so she's um, got to decide, am I Arya Stark, who, who has a kill list, or am I no one who doesn't care about things like my last name and, you know, who I was before this? And so she kind of has to decide, well, am I going to become this super assassin, or am I going to go just kill this guy who's on my list? And right. I think that we're supposed to understand that, okay, and then we follow the guy to the brothel, and we learn that he's... Awful. He's just, um, you know, he's a he's a garbage person. Yeah. And so now we, you know, as audience members, I think we're thinking, yeah, if anyone deserves to die, it's this guy, right? Sure. Sure. So, 
I don't know. Maybe they didn't do a great job of explaining that. I think a lot of Arya's story this season has been maybe too understated or too subtle. I mean, like, I I got it, but I don't know that I got it, got it. I was taken by the distraction, right? I'm like, okay, she's clearly now deviating from her course mm-hmm. then it brings up like so then what do you want right and what it, what is it and i don't but i think that that's the lesson i don't think she knows what mm-hmm. she's still a kid and it's an interesting way to to demonstrate that someone is still kind of youthful by but still having them be murderous yeah that's, that's right <laughs> it's, it's fascinating right but that's that's westeros baby so this is a really religion heavy season because we got all the politics at King's Landing with this High Sparrow guy, right? And then we actually see sort of this fire god magic. And then you've got this weird thing with Arya happening where, in the way that a lot of religions try to eschew ego, like you cast off ego in order to find enlightenment. I think that there's something right. happening with Arya where she's thinking, if I want purpose in my life, I'm going to have to delete like right click and delete on a lot of who i am in order to sort of throw myself into this religious identity right i i think that Arya can't quite give up her identity and i think in all of these ways well you just see drastically different outcomes for all of these scenarios it feels like oh you're not just telling me the same thing over and over again about and I think that's what a lot of shows will do. Like, it's, like even with, you know, shows that, that really play with religion, like The New Pope, mm-hmm. I feel like, yeah, but aren't you just trying to tell me over and over this, give me the same cautionary story about being too religious or being a hypocrite or whatever? I feel like there's like this slow, steady drumbeat in a lot of prestige television that critiques religion. But I feel like Martin is critiquing like four different religions from four different angles. And I find it fast. I find it fascinating in a way that I, I don't see in other shows. So did you, do you feel better about this season on the rewatch because of that? Or did you still appreciate all that stuff? But like, yeah, Dorn sucks. I, I appreciate it more on the rewatch. I, on review, I found Dorne more interesting than I did before. And I find the stuff in Marine less interesting than I did before. Interesting. Yeah, Marine hasn't done a ton for me. Uh, I mean, I, it, it's, it's, I, I like, I like plenty, but it's not like I find myself impatient with mm-hmm. Marine. And I think this, this episode helps quite a bit with that impatience. Well, I mean, talk about a horse on fire. Yeah, baby. Dro- Drogon deciding to put his hat in the ring, you yeah, know, taking on all challengers. That was that was next level stuff. Uh, and here I am, you know, reticent about dragons in the beginning, but man, I was rooting for that dragon. <laughs> I I was, and I I was like, because I'm sitting there and I'm watching that thing go on. I looked over to Heather, I'm like, it's Drogon time. And then we heard the the screech, and I'm like, oh, now did oh, you hell think yeah. that before she closed her eyes or after she closed her? Uh, before, uh, yeah, because I'm like, there's no way out. Dude, Drogon's got to come in here. And then she closed her eyes, and I'm like, oh hell yeah! Like so, that was it was it was a sequential thing. Yeah, I mean, once once you hear the shriek of the dragon, yeah, yeah, and I was in. Yeah, he that, and I and 
I know this, we, we discussed this a little bit, but I, I told Heather this last night too. I'm like, I could watch an entire episode of Tyrion reacting to dragons. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's really great. You know, the the backstory with Tyrion is that as a kid, he's he was always fascinated with dragons. And in one scene in the book, when he's heading up to the wall, like early on, he's reading a book about dragons. And so there's like these little seeds planted that, he loves dragon lore. Like, that's that's his jam. He likes to read all about dragons, and that's kind of what he does for fun. So I think, no, for me, knowing that about him makes me think, oh, he's like wet in his pants. He's so happy about this dragon. Right. There's got, but there's a, it's a mixture of joy and, like, and full-on, like, horrific appreciation. Yeah, right. right. Like, I know what these things can do. I love that we're starting to really feel the sense of, like, the fire and yeah. ice. Yeah, yeah. Dilemma, right? I mean, we start with fire, we end with fire, uh, fire all throughout. Like this is a very fire centric episode. Uh, dismemberment count. We uh, we lost a head of an uh, some oh, yeah. unknown fighter who who was quick, but only until he lost his head. Yeah. Now I feel like. You think that these guys are badasses who are fighting in the ring, and then Drogon shows up, and it's like, oh, this is a whole different sport, right? Well, and that changes that, and that's and what, and that's that's I think Tyrion's look at the end, which is that's how I took it too. Is not only, oh my god, it's a dragon, how cool! It's like uh, I'm on the team with the dragon. It's official. <laughs> yeah. uh, I this this was a good year of free agency for me. <laughs> Yeah, once once you draft the dragon, it. it's kind of yeah. Because you're looking at you're like, okay, the, I don't know what alliances are happening now in in King's Landing. I mean, things are sounds like things are a little rough everywhere. But ah, you know, I got the dragon. I got the dragon. I got an army that's getting less because of the sons of the harpy. Mm. But but of course, then there's the element of like, yeah, but she just took off with the dragon. You're still in the pit. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Now, that was sort of... Okay, two things about the dragon. One is, I like that the dragon isn't all-powerful. Like, some of those spears go in. Yeah, and he's and you're, clearly wounded. This guy can't take... I mean, he can't just take unlimited spears. Like, there is some danger here. Right. Uh, and then, of course, her flying away on the dragon. Because it always seemed a little... I guess the hints have been... Danny can't control these things. Right. And are you going to really trust that you are going to be able to control this dragon 200 feet in the air? Well, and the thing, too, is like there's this one of the reasons why she got as far as she has is because at least she either had dragons or there was the mystique of dragons. But then, you know, this this season, the dragons have gotten locked up. She's yeah. been having to lead. She's kind of leading on reputation. Sure, she's she's freed people, but that's not necessarily mm turning into the bankable asset that it was earlier because it's caused all these problems uh in marine and so it's kind of like well you know sure she's got Tyrion, but like is it gone too like is it too little too late because there's that, that that's kind of where it feels like it's building up to in when they when they are all in the pit yeah very poetic that she's now caught in the pit that she reluctantly signed on for and she's surrounded and it's like well your your mystique is gone you've the two dragons that you sort of have control over are locked away. They can't help you now. Your army is getting cut up pretty bad. Nobody cares about you. Like in here, nobody cares about you. And then we get the reminder. So that was really, but it also shows that like, you know, 
take take the dragons away from Danny and, you know, what do you got? Uh, all right, something that uh, didn't work for you this episode. Um, it's it's just being in Dorn for the most part. I really don't like uh, what's her name, the uh, the mother in Dorn. Elaria Sand. Yeah, I mean, yeah. in general, uh, I mean, I actually liked her when she was palling around with Oberyn. Yeah, I would agree. And then also, she's she, not a great mother. To- I mean, I don't like to judge other people's parenting <laughs> techniques, but I don't think she's very good at this whole mothering thing. Because <laughs> uh, everything just seemed like any any subtlety that the show is doing, it completely abandons and Dorn, even when it comes to like dialogue. Mm-hmm. And even Jamie, like I don't, I'm not really compelled by him and Dorn. Like he just seems off everything seems off so just so you know and, and yeah. these are i i i couldn't help myself i looked up the names of the sand snake daughters nimiria or nim tyene and obra sand okay and this will be the last time we speak of them all right it's good it's a good deal good deal all right, but I, but again, to be to be clear, I actually like the complication. I liked rescuing of the daughter niece. Mm-hmm. There's a lot about that that I actually think is is intriguing. Yeah, and uh, all right, so yeah, all right, something that worked for you. Uh, well, I mean, outside of the you know, like finally getting the death of Shireen. Um, <laughs> uh, I am very. Uh, very keen on what happens when Davos finds out about what happened. If he even makes it, I don't know. We'll find out, but like that could be a, a pretty rich storyline. Does it mean that Davos is going to argue with Stannis about something? Look, look, your grace. Um, you know, I follow you anyway. I'll give up my fingers for you, but I just feel like you shouldn't have cooked your own daughter. No more questions further. I come out. Like I wanted to get like more and more like unintelligible as it as it goes along. For this week's bird's eye view, I want to include a short excerpt of my longer conversation with Chris Swank. Chris is on faculty at Signum University. She is an expert in Tolkien studies which, of course, is one of my favorite topics to talk about. But here we talk about an essay she wrote on the celibate societies of Westeros. And that can be found in a book titled Game of Thrones versus History. Here's a clip of my conversation with Chris Swank. So, Chris, you've written an essay on the celibate societies of Westeros in a book called Game of Thrones versus History. Do I have that right? Do, what's the essay title? The essay is called I Shall Take No Wife. Okay. All right. And I'm assuming that you're looking at the Night's Watch, among other uh, other institutions? Exactly. The, the Poor Brothers and the silent sisters and uh-huh. uh there's a lot of not having sex going on in westeros <laughs> well that's interesting because there's a lot of having sex going on too right it really gets a reputation <laughs> for being a, a very sexualized um uh-huh. series but when you look at it there's all of these societies yeah, yeah that their members have to 
vow to be celibate, yeah. which is really quite interesting. But well, it's very it, it is interesting because of the importance of progeny for everyone. At least right. everyone. Most of the people we meet in this book are sort of high society types. So there's going to be some sort of transfer of wealth, and of course, progeny is uh, paramount. So. Who gets to have the sex and who doesn't get to have the sex is is interesting. Right. If your lady is at home in, in the keep while you're out making war on somebody, you don't want her to be making babies with the, the maester or, <laughs> right? No, you don't. Yeah. So you've got to trust those people that you leave um, back home when you're gone. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, let me ask you this about the Night's Watch, if you don't mind. Yeah, no problem. So I've been trying to foist this theory on folks that the Night's Watch looks a lot like some of these militaristic orders, uh, but has a lot in common with monastic orders. And yet, you know, some of the pushback I've got is, yeah, but they're they're mostly secular. And I, I wonder if what would your take be on that? Well, some of those orders like the Templars and the Hospitallers were both monastic and militaristic orders. Yeah. You're, you're singing my tune. Keep going. <laughs> Absolutely. Also, the Roman legions uh-huh. uh, were to be unmarried for the 25 years. That's that they, not a great they would idea, join. by the way, but keep, but keep going. <laughs> yeah, they would join up for 25 years. Uh-huh. Of course, they were having sex with the local women wherever they were posted. Of uh-huh. course, they were. But, I mean, we have the evidence in the forts of, like, little baby shoes and women's shoes in Mm. the um, archaeological remains of forts in Britain. Interesting. But uh, officially, they were unmarried for the time that they served the Roman Legion. And then once they uh, got done with their very mere 25 years of service, right? um, they could then get married and have families. All right. So then at about the time of Hadrian's Wall, what would we expect of the uh, Roman garrison up there? Yes. That's what we would expect of the Roman garrison. Up yeah, there. exactly. Okay. I, I love it. So. It was a policy for a really long time. I think Septimus Severus got rid of it sometime around 200. So it could cross over to that Hadrian's mm. Wall fort time. But yeah, okay. Um, but we know from the forts up, but the remains of the forts at Hadrian's Wall that there were baby shoes and women's items in yeah. the remains of those forts. We also know that a bunch of them stayed on in Britain after they were released from service and, and stayed with the families mm. that they had made unofficially. Interesting. I absolutely appreciate that. My thanks to Chris, and I can't wait to have her back to talk more about Catelyn Stark. Just a reminder, look for Perfect Stranger Things and our other podcasts on the movies that inspired Stranger Things, which is called Cocoons of Horror. And that is all for this week.